The message this morning is entitled, Why? It's a single, as the announcement said. It's going to be part of an album eventually. Who, what, why, and when. That's the name of the album and the name of the messages. This is the why. And this morning, I'd like to take you on a spiritual journey. Not some new age sentimental sojourn, but a spiritual journey nevertheless. We are going to the worst place on earth in our journey. We're going to go there first. It might not be too nice, (laughs) but we need to go there. We're going to have a look at the selfish heart of man. Then we are going to the very best place in all of the universe, the cosmos, everything that's created, we're going to have a look at the heart of God. And then I'm going to be very honest with you, right up front, at the end of the message, I'm going to call you to make a commitment. Have any of you heard of Captain Lawrence Oates? Does that name ring any bells to you? Probably not. He was an Englishman like myself, He lived back in, or he was born in 1880. He was educated at Eton, a prestigious school just outside of London, not far from a little town called Windsor. The royal family still send their children to Eton. Charles and Diana sent their children there. Well, Lawrence Oates was educated at Eton. Soon after graduating from there, he went and joined the British military. At age 22, he was promoted to lieutenant at 22 years of age. He served his country faithfully. He went overseas to India and South Africa, and his talents were recognized. And at the very early age of 26, he was a captain in the British Army. 26 years of age, full of promise. Well, four years later, he applied to be a part of an expedition going to the South Pole. Captain Scott was going to be leading that, and Captain Oates, Lawrence Oates, who I'm talking to you about, he made an application. Could he be part of the team? He was accepted. So on November 1st, 1911... Captain Scott, Captain Oates, and three other men began a 900-mile hike from the edge of Antarctica where they moored their ship, and they're going to walk to the 10,000-foot-high South Pole. It was the 1st of November. That would be winter for us in the Northern Hemisphere. Of course, that's the start of summer for them down under. Just before they departed, they received a telegram from a Norwegian explorer. This is what it said. Beg leave. Inform you, proceeding Antarctica. That means that the Norwegians, as well as the British, were now seeking to be the first to the South Pole. No human being had ever set foot 
on that spot. The race was on. Scott, Oates and their team hit bad weather, very bad weather. They were grounded for four days in their tent whilst a wild blizzard blew. But after 79 days, they reached the South Pole. Along the way, they had lost the use of their entire fleet of load-carrying ponies. Near the end of their trip to the South Pole, they were pulling sleds 200 pounds in weight. But they got there. They got to the South Pole, only to find the Norwegians had got there before them. Now they are in the middle of nowhere. They are 900 miles from anything that could be called civilization. It had taken them a lot longer to get there, and they were now headed into bad weather. They knew it on the way back. The weather again turned treacherous on them. Progress was painfully slow. One month into their return journey, Petty Officer Edgar Evans, one of the five, died of sheer exhaustion. His eyes were just glazed. He gave up and he died. The other four continued on. Although it was very evident that Captain Oates, the one who I'm telling you about, was seriously ill. Survival now was their goal. That depended on getting to their supply depots. And the temperature was now down to minus 47. These men were exhausted. They were hanging on to life by a thread. It was March 16. They were only 30 miles from 10-ton depot, which was a major depot that they'd set up on their way out with their ponies. There there was food. There there was oil. They'd had depots all the way along, but the oil had been evaporating for some unknown reason. When they were getting there, they were having to cut rations as well as being weak. But they knew at 10-ton depot there was plenty there. They were 30 miles away. The weather was bad. Captain Oates had frostbite in his feet. He knew he couldn't take his boots off because it would be more than his boot that came off. He was in terrible, terrible pain. And he begged Captain Scott, the leader, go on without me. Go on without me. Captain Scott says, we will not leave you. We will not forsake you. We're in this together. So they broke camp. They headed back out into the freezing weather. And they tried. He tried. He tried. They made a few miles that day against all odds. They put up tent again. The next morning was March 17, 1912. And Captain Oates said to his companions... What, at least in England and Europe, have now become very famous words. Just going outside, maybe sometime. 
he was never seen again. His body was never recovered. Scott and the two others that remained carried on trying to make that last few miles to safety. They again were pinned by a howling gale. Four days they were in their tent, just 11 miles from safety, and they all froze to death. When the search party came out after winter had passed, six months later, they found them perfectly preserved in their sleeping bags, in their tent, dead. Why do I tell you that story? It's a tragic story, isn't it? I want to ask you, (coughs) excuse me, I want to ask you a question. What Captain Oates did that morning when he left his tent, he knew what he was doing. They knew what he was doing. But I want to ask you a question. Did he do the right thing? Was it suicide? Was he a coward? Was it foolishness? Or was it bravery? Was it an attempt to save life? I asked my children that question after we were reading this. And they were both absolutely adamant they had the right answer. One said he shouldn't have done it, Daddy. The other said he did the right thing. What do you think? Did he do the right thing? Amen. I want us to understand in this message that God does not primarily look at outward performance, outward appearance. God looks at the heart. He looks at the motive. He asks, why? Why? Why did he do it? 1 Samuel, chapter 16 and verse 7. Man looks on the outward appearance. You know the rest of the verse? But the Lord looks at the heart. Let's turn our attention from Captain Oates and have a little glance at ourselves. Why do we do what we do? Why do we do what we do when nobody is looking at us? Why are we putting our time and our energy into what we're putting our time and energy into? What is motivating you or me in our Christian experience? That's what God is more interested in than what we take great efforts to put out on the outside. Why? Is it because just that's what Christians do? Is it to keep the peace? Is it to keep up appearances, reputation? Do you do what you do because there's something in it for you? 
Yes, you do. Every single one of you do. And so do I. Often noble acts, acts that seem a tremendous thing to other people, are nothing more than absolute selfishness. And nobody knows it. And sometimes we don't even know it ourselves. Let's take a look just quickly at some of the Bible characters. If I was to say to you the name Absalom, you wouldn't be very impressed if you know your Bible. Not many people call their little boy Absalom. Not a great name for a child. Because we know Absalom, we know the end of the story. But when Absalom was at the king's gate, they thought he was a great guy. In fact, it tells us there in 2 Samuel 15, 6, Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. They came to get their problems solved and, oh, David was so busy and Absalom was so kind, he was so understanding and he was, and if only he could be king. They thought Absalom was doing the right thing. He was a righteous man. So Israel thought. Was it? Was it righteousness? Why was he doing it? He wanted to be king instead of his father. It wasn't righteousness at all. It was sin. It just looked like righteousness. And it isn't any different today. You and I are masters at making sin look like righteousness. And God just writes in his record book, why? Why? If I was to talk to you about Judas... Not many people name their little boy Judas, because we know the end of the story. But when it came to Jesus organizing his team, who was it that chose Judas to be part of the twelve? Was it Jesus? No, it was not Jesus. You read your Bible carefully. It was the other disciples. How could we have a ministry and not have a businessman like Judas? If we have Judas on our team, we'll be much stronger because he is a righteous man. He is seeking God. He is shrewd. He is smart. He knows more about money than the rest of us. Oh, yeah, he knew more about money than the rest of them. That's for sure. Desire of Ages, page 293, for those of you taking notes, Desire of Ages, 293, Judas believed Jesus to be the Messiah. Many people didn't, you know. Judas did. And by joining the apostles, he hoped to secure a high position in the new kingdom. Why was Judas following Jesus? For all the wrong reasons. Why are you following Jesus? 
We know the end of the story. With Judas, we don't know the end of your story. And you don't know the end of my story. I told you we were going to the worst place on earth. I hope you're not too depressed. We could go on, I won't, but we could go on and we could look at Balaam. His motive was money as well. We could look at Haman. What should we do for the man that the king delights to honor? We could look at the presidents and the princes in Daniel 6. Let's make a decree that nobody can bow to anybody except you. Why? Oh, why? Oh, why? Nothing but horrible selfishness. It's summed up in the New Testament, in the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, 3. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not charity, have not God's love, it profits me absolutely nothing. No matter if every single person on planet earth tells you what a hero you are. Unless it's done purely for the love of God, it will profit you and it would profit me absolutely nothing. And we would hear those dreaded words, I never knew you. Indeed, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. My wife and I, when we were two weeks, three weeks after our wedding day, we went to the mission field. We gave up the Western world. We gave up prosperity. We gave up financial planning. And we went off to deepest, darkest Africa. We had lots of pats on the back. My wife had all the right motives. She loved people. I'll be very honest with you, I had all the wrong motives. I loved adventure. I thought this would be a great adventure. Go and see the alligators and the elephants. And we did. Is that a reason for going to the mission field? Is that a reason for using the Lord's money so I could go and have a good time with my new wife and put the label missions? I'm sorry to tell you, I was so horribly deceived and selfish. And I've asked forgiveness. And God has forgiven me. How many of you have been nice to somebody, children? This goes for you as well. How many of you have been nice to somebody to get something that you're after? Thank you. Several people put their hands up on this side. How about anybody on this side? Doing something nice for somebody because you're after something is nothing short of selfishness. 
It is sin. Not often called sin, but it's sin nevertheless. And in God's kingdom, it's labelled as such. How many of you have exaggerated and kind of insinuated something, never actually came out with it, but, you know, trying to lead in that direction, to mislead somebody? God knows why you were saying what you were saying. Listen to this. The inspired commentary in Patriarchs and Prophets talking about the ninth commandment about bearing false witness. Page 309. I read, quote, Any intention to deceive is what constitutes falsehood. By a glance of the eye, a motion of the hand, an expression of the countenance, a falsehood may be told as effectually as by words. All intentional overstatements, every hint or insinuation calculated to convey an erroneous, exaggerated impression, even the statement of facts in such a manner as to mislead, is falsehood, end of quote. Even the statement of facts in such a manner as to mislead is falsehood. It is a lie. It is a sin. And it's recorded in heaven as such. And every one of us, be honest, brothers and sisters and children, every single one of us has done it. More than once. Maybe today. God looks at the why more than he looks at the what. Let's turn in our Bibles. Turn with me to Matthew 23. Matthew 23, verse 25. Jesus is talking to his friends, the scribes and the Pharisees. They were his friends, you know. They weren't his friends, but he was their friend. Picking it up, chapter 23, verse 25. Jesus' language is extra strong. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye may clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Ye Sorry. Ye blind Pharisees, cleanse first that which is within the cup and the platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees! Hypocrites! For ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but are within full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Who was Jesus speaking to? Who was Jesus speaking to? Who was Jesus speaking to? Us. 
It's not much different today, brothers and sisters. I am surprised by how passionate Jesus was in those words. It seems like he's almost wild over this emphasis on the outside and nobody's talking about the heart. Mind, character, and personality, volume one, page three, four, five. Every action of our lives is judged not by external appearance, but from the motive which dictated the action. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. I don't want you to start judging people's motives. Don't go there. And two times in my life I've had people make public their views of what my motives were. Both times, because they weren't in my hearts and prayers, they were wrong. And it hurt. And I've determined never to do that to any other person on this planet. And I want you to determine the same. I'm talking about your motives. I'm not talking about your children's motives. I'm not talking about your spouse's motives. I'm talking about your motives and my motives. Turn with me. We're in Matthew. Let's go to Luke 22. Come on, get those pages rustling. The Bible stands. And it will forever. We need to know our word. Luke 22 and verse 33. Peter, beloved Peter, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both to prison and to death. Was he? What happened a few hours later? A few hours later, Peter is hacking off ears with his sword He is swearing, he is lying, he is cursing, he is denying his creator. Yet a few minutes before, he said, I am willing to go with thee to prison and death. Peter didn't know himself. But surely he did. He'd been with Christ full time for nearly three years at this point. He'd slept with Jesus. He'd ate with Jesus. He'd walked all day with Jesus. He'd had more time with Jesus than we have. He knew him face to face. Desire of Ages, 6.73. When Peter said he would follow his Lord to prison and death, he meant it. Every word of it. That's the quote. He meant it. Every word of it. But he did not know God. Is that what it says? No, I changed the word there. But he did not know himself. Hidden, listen to this, please. This is the crux of this section. Hidden in his heart were elements of evil that circumstances would fan into life. And I have to bear the bad news that hidden in your heart and hidden in my heart are evils that circumstances 
will fan into existence. You believe it, or are you above all of that stuff? Oh, you better believe it, brothers and sisters. For Christ's sake, you better believe it. I hope I believe it. In this part of the message, I'm really only trying to reveal to us how horrible we really are. Are you with me? You have a horrible preacher preaching to a horrible congregation. Not just here. All over Oklahoma, there are horrible preachers preaching to horrible congregations. In fact, all over North America, it's happening at this time. And in an hour to come, and the hour just gone, there are horrible preachers preaching to horrible people. And we're all having a great time. (laughs) Brushing it under the carpet. Isaiah 1.5 says that the head is sick and the whole heart faint. How horrible are you? I don't know how horrible you are. I know how horrible I am. I know that I have to pray for a love for my God. I have to pray for love enough to love my wife. And I even have to pray to be able to love my children. Isn't that tragic? It's never meant to be that way, but that's where we've gotten to. Please, at this point, if you have a PhD or some other bunch of letters after your name, I don't care in the slightest and neither does God. He wants to use your education. You might have a big income. It won't matter a thing in the day of judgment. Ministry of Healing 477, not by their wealth, their education, or their position does God estimate men. He estimates them by the purity of motive and the beauty of character. Don't rest on what you think you are. Rest on what you know you are in God's sight. Some of you are saying at this point, come on, get on with it. We've heard enough. I know, I know, I know I'm that bad. I know it. I know it more than you know, Mr. Preacher. I know how bad I am. I'm going to give you some encouragement, brothers and sisters. But there's only a few people in this congregation who are really at that point. Some others in the congregation, this may be new light to you, that you are as horrible as that. It might be touching chords in your heart that haven't been touched before. So to some, your horribleness is new light. To others, it's almost overwhelming. But you know, for most of us, I don't think it's sinking in. I'm not sure if it's sinking into my heart. I'm praying that it will. But I'm not entirely sure if it's really sinking in how horrible self really is. 
Well, I want to shift gears at this point. We've been to the worst place on earth, the selfish heart of man. Now I want to take us to the best place in all the created, whatever word you use, world, universe. I want us to take a look at the heart of God. I'm painfully inadequate for this section of the message. (laughs) I'm much more familiar with the other stuff. But you know, when we had our message yesterday for fathers, and I had you writing out what it was that you appreciated about God, we had some music playing, didn't we? Oh Lord, you're beautiful. But when we think about God, what is it that's beautiful about God? Is it his face? Is it his jacket? What is it that's beautiful about God? His character. His love. What's beautiful about God is why he does what he does. That's what's beautiful about God. Why did God leave heaven? We don't have any idea what it's like there. We don't have any idea of the unity, the peace the love. Think of your, your most intimate, loving moment with another human being. When your heart burned within you. And that is just a little taste of what heaven is constantly pulsing with. I can't wait to be there. But Christ was willing to leave all of that. And we don't understand all of that, but he was willing to leave it and come down here. That whilst we were yet horrible sinners, he would come and live with us and die for us. As the song says, I scarce can take it in. Jesus was born in a a barn, essentially, we'd call it today. He lived a peasant's life. He almost starved to death in the wilderness. He was ridiculed, finally totally rejected. He was betrayed. You know what it feels like to be betrayed? He was betrayed by one of his closest one who he had protected for years. He was tortured to death, not for the fame and the fortune, not for the luxury and the laugh, but for you and for me. Why did Jesus go to the wilderness after his baptism? Jesus said in John 5.30, I can, of mine own self, do nothing. That was the exact opposite to Peter. I'm ready. (laughs) Jesus said, I'm not ready. So Jesus went to the wilderness. 
Because he was so passionate about saving you and I, and he knew who he was up against. When he went to the temple at age 12, he realized that that bleeding lamb was him. And that those thoughts had developed. And now he knew that his baptism was the start of his public ministry. And yes, I believe he knew the prophecies. He knew he'd got three and a half years ahead of him. And he knew where it was all going to end. But it didn't stop him. He went off to the wilderness because he was serious. Are we getting out of bed because we're serious? Ultimately, Jesus went to the cross. Jesus, all his life, had given. When he wanted to rest, he had given. When he wanted to go one place and the Lord wanted him to go somewhere else, he gave. He gave and he gave and he gave and he gave again. And then it came to the point of having to make the ultimate decision. How far would Jesus go? Of course, we we look back at the history of it now, but the history wasn't written at that point. When Jesus was on the cross, the priests said he saved others. Himself he cannot save. You know, that was a true statement. Even though it came from profaned lips, it was a true statement. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. Oh yes, he could have saved himself. Could Jesus have got down off the cross? Could he? He could have. But he couldn't have. One of those things that's hard to understand. Yes, he could have got down off of the cross. You remember when he was in Gethsemane, everything fell as dead men. Jesus could have got down off the cross. He could have, in a moment, destroyed everything evil in this world right there on the cross. He could have done it. That was his biggest temptation. But if he'd have got down off the cross, you know who would have been there? It would have been us. We would have had to die the forever death. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. When it really came down to it, brothers and sisters, Jesus was prepared to go all the way. Yes, here it is. By one word, one glance, he could have destroyed everybody around him. It's a paraphrase, but it's based on a quote. One word, one glance, he could have been out of there. But he wasn't. Why? Who was he thinking of? Us. He was thinking of me. He was thinking of you. And you hadn't been born. You hadn't repented. Here's a question. Is it possible, brothers and sisters, for us to have that kind of love? I heard one very quick yes over here. 
Is it possible, brothers and sisters, for us to have that kind of love? It most definitely is. I believe that every part of that promise. With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. We can have God's love in our hearts. But not the heart that we've got now can't. We need a new heart. The heart that we have now just ain't going to make it. It just ain't going to make it. You can take it to college. You can take it to the mission field. You can take it to family camp meeting. You can bring it to family camp meeting next time. But it isn't going to change that heart. We need a new heart. We need new motives. We need new desires. And then indeed we can do all things. You know, with a new heart, we can do God's will. Do you believe it? With a new heart... We can have peace that passeth understanding. We can be, dads, the kind of dad that God is calling us to be with a new heart. Not with a heart we've got. I know we've all tried that. But with a new heart, we can do that. Because the heart is God's heart. With a new heart, mothers... We can raise godly children. And with a new heart, we can put into practice everything. Yes, indeed, everything. Not all at once. <laughs> we can put into practice what we've learned here at Family Camp Meeting. Not with the old heart, but with God's heart. The Christian's life is not a modification or improvement of the old. It is a transformation of nature. It is a death to sin and self. It is a new life, or a new heart. It is a new life altogether. So how do we get our new heart? That's what I want to spend the remaining moments on. Do you want a new heart? Have you tried and tried to fix it up? And patch it up? And no matter what you do, it doesn't work. We need new hearts, brothers and sisters. Do you think God would ever want to give us a new heart? Do you think that's within God's will? Do you think that's within God's power? Almost definitely is. Three steps to a new heart. Number one, no new light really in this. Ask 
God for a new heart. Claim the promise or claim the prayer in Psalm 51.10, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Romans 8.32, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, shall he not freely give us all things? Are you willing to ask for a new heart? Do you feel your need? Do we need to go back to the beginning of the message and go over all that stuff again? You're a horrible bunch. You really are. Please don't take it personally, or maybe you should be taking it very personally. I'm not just speaking of you, I'm speaking of humankind, of myself. We are desperately wicked. Who can know it? We need a new heart, brothers and sisters. First step in having a new heart is to get down on your knees and ask for one. Step number two is to give ourselves to God anew every day. Spend time in that book. Spend time in prayer and make that full surrender new every day. For a new heart, number one, ask. Number two, spend time in God's word and prayer every morning. And number three, give every known decision to God. Every known choice to him. Give every motive to him. Lord, why am I going to do this? And if it's nothing short of sin, plead with the God to change your heart. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. If you fall, and you probably will. Not that you have to. But it's the work of a lifetime, learning to handle this new heart. You can go to God. He can forgive anything. Are you willing to have a new heart, or do you want to keep that old heart that has elements of evil that circumstances will fan into life when you least expect it. When the pressure's on, all of a sudden, you'll behave in a way that you didn't even know you were capable of behaving. That's what will happen if we hang on to the old heart. We need a new heart. Alison is going to play for us as we think on this, I surrender all. Are you willing to surrender all? Are you willing to surrender all? If you're going to surrender all, I know there's already things coming up in your mind that you're worried about. 
Oh yeah, I can surrender all, but are you willing to surrender all, including some things you've never surrendered before? Are you? Are you willing to surrender all? And in that all, include some things that you have been struggling with that you've never yet surrendered and had victory over. If that is your desire, I'm going to ask you to stand up. Well, not yet. I'm going to ask you to stand up and I'm going to ask you to come to the front. If you are going to surrender all, but that surrendering of all doesn't involve anything new, I'll be very happy, but I don't want you to come to the front. You can stay where you are. I'll be delighted for every person that I see kneeling down, those that are able. But the call that I am making, I'm trying to make it as clear as I can, is for those who are going to surrender all at this point. And that all includes something that you've never surrendered before. This is new ground down the front. Existing ground, I'm very happy for. If you're recommitting your life to God, do it where you are. But now, at this time, at this point, if you are willing, and I don't expect a huge group, maybe I'll be wrong, I don't know. If you are willing to surrender something you've never surrendered before, I want you to make your way to the front. You precious people. Don't feel like you have to come, please. I'm very happy for those in the pews. There's no pressure here. This is for people who are surrendering something that they've never surrendered before. I'm looking for two hearts amongst this group. They know who they are. You don't know who they are. I know who they are. They know who they are. I don't even know if they're here. But can I just speak to those two hearts? It won't get any easier than this. Please come. Wherever you are. I love to see the people at the front. You made me cry. But I love to see the people in the pews as well because I don't take that as a reluctance I see that that you were fully surrendered before you got here praise God I believe you people were fully surrendered before you came as well but the Lord has kindled something in your heart I'm only pausing at this point in case there's somebody and there always is that right at this point they know where they should be and they're not there yet so please be patient for those people I'm searching my, for my friends with my eyes. Where are you, friends? Now I know why Jesus hasn't come back yet. He just keeps waiting. 
He just keeps waiting because he wants everybody. Shall we kneel where we're able? Father in heaven, oh, I am delighted to see such a group. It's a group, but it's not really a group. Of precious individual hearts. Father, please give us a new heart. We need a new heart. We need a new heart to go on. Father, for everybody at the front, I pray that you will give them victory over what they have just surrendered that they have never surrendered before. Oh, the devil's mad. But God is more powerful than the devil. Father, give my brothers and sisters, all oh, these sweet children, give them victory where they've never had victory before as they gaze at you and why you did what you did, why you went all the way. You're not asking us to do anything that you haven't already done. Father, I pray for my dear brothers and sisters in the pews. I thank you for them. Father, may each one of us move onward and upward. And like Joshua and Caleb, conquer. Believe even that we can conquer the giants in our life. Thank you for your Holy Spirit's working on our heart. Oh, Father, stay with us. We don't want you to leave us. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.